Our reading this evening is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. Thanks, Kathy. Well, let's pray as we come to, to God's word. Father God, we thank you that it is by grace that we have been saved. It is by grace that we are being saved. And it is by grace that we will be saved. Lord, help us to understand more of your grace this evening, that we may be more faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've started a series called Disciples Who Make Disciples. And the reason we're doing this series is because if you were to summarize all the commands that Jesus gives to us as his disciples, all the things we're called to do as a church, in many ways you could encapsulate that all in saying make disciples. There's lots of good things that we can do as a church and we do do as a church, but if we're not seeking to make disciples, then we're not really serving him faithfully and we're not really being fruitful as followers of Jesus Christ. Last week we started with the basic question, what is a disciple? And uh, some of the answers that we came up with were a learner, uh, a follower. But as we saw in that passage from 1 Thessalonians 1, which described how Christians in that city had come to faith, there are many more aspects to being a disciple than what most people today think of as a follower. What we saw was um, these uh, things here, that a disciple of Jesus is one who is loved and chosen by God. One who has turned to Christ, one who has repented and been forgiven. One who is learning, there's a learner, to obey Christ and be like Christ. We're continually depending on his grace day by day. One who has given up everything for Christ. And one who makes other disciples. Well, we'll come on later in this series to what our role is in making disciples and, and how we make disciples. But there's no point... Um, going there yet until we've really understood the purpose behind making disciples. 
Because with anything in life, unless we really understand why we are doing something, we're not going to be able to put our heart into it. The question why made disciples could be answered very simply, couldn't it? Because Jesus told us to. The Great Commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So in one sense, you can't be a disciple unless you are, are making disciples. But if we're just doing it because we've been told to do it, then there's something that is lacking in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So what are the other reasons for making disciples? Well, the first one is because of the joy God has in making disciples. Let's have a look at this passage that Kathy read for us. Get you, if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at this in a bit, bit of detail. And as we read these opening verses of chapter 2, we are reminded of just how bad our situation was before we became Christians. The way in which our previous condition is described, when it says we follow the ways of this world, when we gratify the cravings of our flesh and follow its desires and thoughts, is that we were dead. To be spiritually dead is to be separated from God, from our source of life. And the two ways in which we're described here by Paul as being dead are in transgressions and in sins. The word transgressions has the idea of going our own way, going beyond the boundaries that have been set, making a conscious decision to do something that is against God's will. In other words, being a rebel. The word rebel these days can mean different things in different situations. Uh, To be described as a bit of a rebel um, is often considered something just a little bit naughty. Young people are almost expected to be a a bit rebellious. James Dean has made it acceptable. But to be a rebel against God is a serious thing. Paul also describes people as being dead in their sins. The word sin here is the idea of missing the mark not living up to God's perfect standards of holiness, when your best just isn't good enough. A failure. And by nature, we are all rebels. We are all failures. We are therefore all spiritually dead. And our spiritual death was a result of the fall. In Genesis, um, God said to Adam and Eve, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as we know, they did disobey God, and we've inherited that sinful nature. We were dead, and we're told we were slaves. Our idea of being slaves is often um, Ben-Hur in a, in a galley ship in the time of Jesus, or Africans working in cotton plantations in the, in the U.S. in the 18th and 19th centuries, People not only deny their freedom, but harshly treated. But you can be a slave without realizing it. And what most people today prize more than anything else is freedom. Freedom to say and do what they want. But what people often can't see is that none of us is truly free. We're constrained in our actions by our social environment, by our human nature. In verse 2 it says, you followed the ways of this world. 
In other words, you are a product of your environment, of your culture. It's very easy to underestimate the powerful influence of the world around us and the opinions that we absorb and the behavior we mimic and the things we value. To follow the ways of the world is also, as it says here, to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, commonly referred to as the devil. We are in a spiritual battle. And the devil is a real spiritual person who does not want us to be disciples of Jesus. He will do all he can to lead us astray and make us ignore God, make us reject God. And he will use our own human weaknesses and temptations against us. So in verse 3, Paul says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We followed our natural human instincts. We did what we wanted to do. But since we have a sinful human nature that wants to please ourselves rather than God, we will always be enslaved to our desires and thoughts. We will always be thinking about some, how, how does it affect me? We were spiritually dead. We were therefore slaves as well. And as a consequence, we're told here, we were by nature, verse 3, deserving of wrath. God's wrath, as I'm sure you know, is not like our human anger, which is all about us. When we don't get our way, when somebody offends us, when we can't have something we want, we lose patience, we lose our temper, we, we are filled with thoughts of revenge. But God's anger His wrath is a righteous anger. It's a perfect, consistent, and predictable reaction to evil. If you offer someone the chance to be freed from slavery to sin, to be considered innocent of all sin, to have a relationship with the God of the universe, and they reject it, they rebel against him, because they think they know what is best, then God's wrath is the only legitimate response. And this is important to understand when it comes to why we make disciples, because just as we were in a serious predicament before we were saved, so those who are not yet disciples of Jesus are still in a terrible place. As Tony Payne and uh, Colin Marshall say in their book, The Vine Project, and if any of you have read this one, um, this is what, um, what they say. The world we live in is not neutral territory. It is not a bright, sunny place where nice people just get on with their lives and work and interests. And where Christians are people who just happen to have a particular interest in going to church. The trouble is it often feels like that, doesn't it? Especially uh, for us living in a nice, comfortable part of uh, Buckinghamshire or Oxfordshire. We have friends who are Respectable citizens, loving parents, hard-working employees who enjoy many of the same things we enjoy. Eating a nice meal, watching an entertaining film, cheering on their team. And the media make us feel that we, we deserve a comfortable life. And when pain occasionally intrudes, it's just a bit of a glitch. We'll find the cause, we'll find those responsible and make sure it doesn't happen again 
And because we're daily exposed to this view of the world, it, it makes us feel that the darkness is not really quite so dark at all. That people's predicament is not really so serious. And the end result is that it affects our view of the urgency of making disciples. We settle into this comfortable week-by-week existence, or we come to church on a Sunday. We enjoy worshipping God. We enjoy encouraging one another. And we almost forget that those outside are slipping into hell. But the more we appreciate the seriousness of people's situation, the more we appreciate God's love in saving us. And the passage here is a great celebration of God's delight in making disciples. We were deserving of of God's wrath because we failed to live up to his standards, because we rebelled against him. But the passage goes on, and there's a great news in verse 4. God steps in. God steps in. But it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It looked as if the situation was totally hopeless. There was nothing that could be done about slavery to sin and our guilt. And then the only one who could do something about it steps in. But God, we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves to sin, but God freed us and raised us up with Christ. We were deserving of his wrath, but God has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now we can understand why God might want to raise up Christ, but why would he want to raise us up with him? Why would he want to seat us in the heavenly realms? Well, the reason is there in verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. God delights in making disciples because of his great love, a love that we don't deserve. And God shows that love by rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his son. As it says in chapter 5 of Ephesians, just a page over, it says, For you were once darkness, in verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. Often that's not a quick process. Jesus spent three years with his 12 closest disciples every day. And at the end of it, as we saw this morning, they still hadn't got it. Having just a a few hours beforehand, all promised they would never let Jesus down. When the crowd come with their swords and their clubs, they all scarper. But Jesus didn't give up on them because he loved them. We make disciples because of the joy of God in making disciples. But also... Second point is because of the joy God gives us in making disciples. We said earlier that the world has dulled our sense of urgency to make disciples because we don't see the seriousness of the situation people are in. And yet when we do get involved in making disciples, we we get to share in the same delight that God has, the same rejoicing there is in heaven when a sinner repents. 
the more we experience God's love, the more we want to follow Jesus, the more we want to be like him. We're told that God does not want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And if God doesn't want anyone to perish, then neither do we. Instead, we want to join him in making disciples. Making disciples isn't a burden. It's not an obligation. It's a great joy because we get to share God's love, the same love that has had such a deep impact on us. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He responded with two things. Love God and love your neighbor. When we love God, we are his disciples. When we love others, we make disciples for Jesus. In John 13, Jesus said this. He said, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are to love as Christ has loved us. And if we do this, people will know that we are his disciples. In our recent series in Acts um, and Sunday evenings, we read how Paul went from place to place um, proclaiming the gospel and discipling new believers. We saw the love that he had for these uh, these Christians, the joy he experienced in making disciples. And uh, that joy comes out in all of his letters, doesn't it? Um, there's a few examples of them just coming up here to the, uh, the disciples in Thessalonica. This is what he writes. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. To the disciples in Philippi, he writes this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And to the disciples in Ephesus, Paul writes again, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. For us to experience that delight We need to appreciate what is going on when someone becomes a Christian. According to the world, what is happening when, say, Mike becomes a Christian is that for various personal reasons, he's turning to religion to fill some sort of uh, need in his life. Maybe for meaning, for belonging, maybe for comfort, um, for hope, whatever. His friends may think that's a positive thing. They they may not. But it's their interpretation of it as faith helping Mike to improve somehow his life. For some Christians, their understanding may not be much different, apart from the fact that they believe that the God Mike is turning to is is really there, that he really will help make make Mike's life better. Mike's life will become more meaningful more morally pure. We can go further. We can say that Mike is actually getting a personal relationship with God. He's getting that through Jesus Christ. 
And through the salvation that he's been given, Mike is now at peace with God. He has a hope for heaven when he dies. But when Mike becomes a Christian, there is something else going on which is not just about Mike. Which brings us on to our third reason for making disciples. It's because we are helping God build his kingdom. We've seen that God delights in making disciples and we can share in that joy. But when we're looking for a reason to do something, it always helps to know what is the ultimate goal that I am aiming for. If you were told just to to go and run and uh, you weren't told whether you were running one mile or 26 miles, unless you were Forrest Gump, you would soon get pretty frustrated, wouldn't you? After each mile, you'd be thinking, how many more to go? I think for me, after each meter, I'd probably be thinking, how many more to go? Why does God want to make disciples? Why does he want to make us disciples? What was the first thing that Jesus said when he started his ministry? Even before he he called Simon and Andrew to follow him. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is building his kingdom. He came to invite people into his kingdom. His death made it possible for people to be part of his kingdom. And he's still building his kingdom today. He will keep building it until he comes again, when his kingdom will be consummated. As I said, when when Mike becomes a Christian, there's something else going on, which is not just about Mike. Jesus is building his church, his kingdom. And Mike is one brick in that spiritual temple of which Jesus is the foundation. He's drawing to himself a great gathering of people that he has redeemed from slavery to sin, from spiritual death. And one day they will all surround his throne. And God is moving all of history toward that final goal. That doesn't make the conversion of Mike any less important, but it puts it in perspective. Because the reason we want to see Mike become a disciple of Christ is because we want to contribute to God's plan of salvation for humankind. We want to see Mike with the rest of God's redeemed people gathered around the risen Christ. So when we pray, as we did earlier on, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is what we are praying. That the time will come soon when all those in his kingdom will be gathered round his throne. And that all those that we know and love will be among those people. It's driven by our love for his people. It's driven also by our love for God because at that moment his name will be hallowed. At the moment it's not being hallowed. It is not being given the honor that it deserves. And we long for that day when it will be. A vision that should be driving us in terms of making disciples is that of Revelation 7. Turn with me if you would to Revelation chapter to 7 verse 9. And let's just look at these verses together, great verses, that great vision. After this I looked, and there before me 
was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb, the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The way Marshall and Payne picture this process in the book I mentioned uh, is uh, like this um, picture. This is about to appear on the screen. We heard earlier how when we were spiritually dead, we were described as being in darkness, in the domain of darkness. But God made us alive. He brought us into the kingdom of the sun. He brought us into the light. And it's the cross there in the middle that made that possible. And even if we can't pinpoint or remember the exact moment when that took place in our lives, there comes a time when we move from darkness to light. There's no sitting on the fence. We're either in one or the other. And when we come to looking at how we make disciples, we shouldn't expect just to move somebody from the extreme domain of darkness to the extreme of light. But actually just moving them one step at a time as God works in their lives by his grace. Even when we come into the light of the kingdom, and become disciples, uh, we're still learners. As it says there, those L plates are still above our heads. We never stop being a learner in this life. We're seeking to become more like Christ. We're seeking to obey him more. And again, we do that one step at a time. In this life, darkness will still have some influence over us as as we see at the bottom of that, that diagram. But when Jesus comes again, at that moment, darkness will be banished Forever, there will only be light. As you see on the extreme right, there there will be a redeemed people gathered around the throne of the risen Christ. That is our goal in making disciples. That is where we're heading. And may our lives be driven by that goal as we look forward to Jesus Christ coming again. Let's have a moment of, of quiet to reflect on that. And then I'll, and I'll pray. Father God, if we are 
Christians here this evening, we thank you that you have brought us out of darkness into light. And we thank you that you did that because of your great love for us, because of your mercy you had on us. We know we didn't deserve it, but we thank you that you showed us your mercy and you saved us. And we thank you that we are free. We are no longer slaves. We thank you that we are alive in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who are not yet at that point, Lord, we do pray that you would show them the way to to Christ. You would help them see the salvation that we can find in him. And Lord, help us see the the end goal to which all history is pointing, to which all history is moving, that Jesus Christ will one day come back again. And Lord, we long to see people together with us gathered around his throne. Lord, help us see the, see the urgency of the situation people are in. Help us not to be sucked in by the comfort of this, this world, the comfort of this society, but help us to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ and help us to make disciples for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.